0: Let's ask God to help us with His Word. Uh, Heavenly Father, this is uh, Your Word. Uh, The Word that You have given us so that we can know You through knowing Your Son Jesus. Uh, The Word that You have given us so that we can live as Your people, live lives pleasing to You in fellowship with You. Help me now to teach it truthfully and clearly. And help us all to receive it with understanding and to put it into practice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we return to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Uh, Let me bring you up to speed again with what's going on in Deuteronomy. Moses and the people of Israel have at last, after 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness, after meeting God at Mount Sinai, come to the border of the land God has promised them. So they're camped on the plains of Moab on the east side of the Jordan River looking into the land of promise and here Moses addresses the people to prepare them to occupy the land, to live in the land of promise as the Lord's people. Deuteronomy is the record of those addresses. At the beginning of chapter 12, we're at a key point of transition in Moses' second speech, the speech that began at chapter 5 and goes through to the end of chapter 26. Now Moses had started that second speech by saying, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. But Moses didn't immediately give them those statutes and rules. Instead, he reminded them of their encounter with the Lord at Horeb, Mount Sinai, where they'd entered into a covenant with the Lord and the Lord had given them the 10 words, the 10 principles that would govern their relationship with the Lord in the covenant. Now, central to that relationship was the expectation that Israel would be exclusively loyal to the Lord, their God, who had rescued them from Egypt, who had shown that he was the only God. They were called to love him with all their heart, mind, and soul, and with all their strength. Or in the words of Deuteronomy 10, what God required of them was that they fear the Lord, their God, they walked in his ways, they loved him, they served him with all their heart and soul. They keep his commandments and statutes. But in this first section of the speech, chapters 5 to 11, Moses had reminded them that being exclusively loyal to the Lord is what they had failed to do. He'd recalled for them their behaviour at Horeb, where, having just heard God say that they shouldn't have any other gods or make idols, they had made an idol, a golden calf, and worshipped it. And that was not the only incident of rebellion against the Lord in those years. Moses listed them for them in Deuteronomy 9, Tabra, Massa, Kibroth, Hattava, oh yes, Kadesh, Banea, where they'd failed to go up and occupy the land. And he'd said, you have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. But despite that record of faithlessness, here they are listening to Moses on the border of the promised land, not because they are good or powerful or more righteous than other nations, but because God is gracious and faithful to his promise. You see, Deuteronomy is another instalment in the story of God's graciousness, his kindness to sinful, undeserving people. That's the way to hear Deuteronomy. It's a record of grace and how to live with the gracious and true God, the Lord, a record that looks forward to the triumph of grace as we'll see at the end of this book. And that's why we as believers in Jesus are interested in Deuteronomy. You see, believers in Jesus, like God's Old Testament people, are people who've been brought into the relation, into relationship with the living God, not because they're good, but because of his gracious rescue of us from slavery to sin and death through the death of his son. So we now live and trust the same gracious God who spoke through Moses and that God has promised us that the scriptures, the sacred writings can actually save us through nurturing in his faith in Jesus and equip us through its teaching, reproof, correction and training to live the life that pleases God, to be equipped for every good work. So in Deuteronomy, this story of failure and faithfulness, of Israel's sin and God's grace, believers expect to learn how to respond to and live in grace, to live as the people of this gracious, saving Lord. Here, in these statutes and rules that Moses finally starts to reveal in chapter 12 and will continue to reveal through to chapter 26, Our God shows us the pattern of life that expresses relationship with him, the true and living, the only God. Now in Deuteronomy, that's a pattern of life expressed in the concrete realities of the rural agricultural society of ancient Israel. But that pattern can now inform our own living in love of our God, the true and only God, Father, Son and Spirit, inform our own living in love of God in the concrete realities of our 21st century urban existence. Here in chapter 12, at the beginning of these rules and statutes, we learn that at the heart of a life lived in love of God, is worshipping him in the way that is consistent with his reality, consistent with who he has revealed himself to be in saving us. That is, worshipping, having our worship, our heartfelt response to God, conform to the truth that he is the living God, no dumb idol, that he is the good God, no mean tyrant, and that he is the Lord of creation, the giver and source of of all life. (coughs) These are the statutes and rules, says Moses. And then he goes on. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire you shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. God tells the Israelites that when they enter the Promised Land, they must remove every trace of the idolatrous worship of the previous inhabitants. They are to remove any suggestion that those God's own or have a right or have power in the land. That's what it is to remove, verse 3, their name from these places. And the Lord insists. In fact, the whole chapter is framed in that insistence. You see it again in verse 31, that the Lord's people must not worship the Lord in the way these nations worshipped their gods. How the pagans worshipped their gods? Well, as we see in many places, with idols and image and, yes, sometimes with inhuman cruelty. What can we say about pagan worship? Well, it's visually engaging, interesting, representing their absent gods with idols and images they've made and installed. So it's visually engaging and it is convenient, any and everywhere, with lots of diversity lots of alternate places and ways, lots of choices, catering to many different tastes. Oh, yes, and it's sincere, passionate even, for some at great cost. But pagans worship the way they want to, doing what they think their gods would be pleased with, doing what pleases them and their ideas of God. And they can do that. They can call their their shots in worship, tailor it to themselves and their own ideas and wants, because their gods are dead, unable to give guidance or correct practice. And the living God says, not their way. The living God insists that he is the one who calls the shots in how he is to be approached, how he is to be worshipped. He is the one who decides what worship he finds acceptable. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes, put his name, and make his habitation there. And so, verse 5, firstly, he insists that, well, he decides where he will be worshipped. You shall seek. Now, that place won't be wherever the Israelites might like it to be, and it won't be determined by their convenience. There's just one place which the Lord will choose. Now, in Deuteronomy, the Lord doesn't tell them the location of that place. The emphasis is on the Lord's choice and that there is just one place. Now, in the history of Israel, that one place was at times Shechem and Shiloh and finally the temple Solomon built in Jerusalem. But as there is for Israel only one God and one covenant and one people and one law, so there is only one place for worship. The one place where the Lord puts his name and makes his habitation. Putting his name there indicates special ownership. By making his choice of that place out of all the tribes, putting his name in one place is a sign of his ownership of the whole land. The Lord's choice reminds Israel that the land is the Lord's, just as they are his people. Making that one place the place of his dwelling indicates the purpose of his choice is to have a place where the Israelites can come near, repeat generation after generation the experience of horror, of being in the Lord's presence as his covenant people. And at that one place they are to worship, verse 6, the Lord in the way the Lord has commanded. Moses lists the sacrifices and offerings that have been commanded elsewhere, for example, in Leviticus It's a summary list, meant to be inclusive of all that God has commanded his people to do in worship in acknowledging the Lord as their holy king amongst them. It's all to happen at that one place, nowhere else. The Lord is saying, again, not the way pagans worship, not in their way. He's saying, my people will worship me in the way I have commanded and only in the way I've commanded. They won't add or take away. He's saying to them, you won't do there what pleases you, what seems right to you, but what I have said pleases me. The Lord is saying, your worship is acceptable only as it conforms to my instruction my word. And you probably noticed in the repetition of the passage, God is very insistent on this. My place, my way. So verse ten. When you go over the Jordan. Oh, I didn't know. It's in the text. If you've got your Bible open, it'll be helpful. Verse ten, when you go over the Jordan, verse eleven. Then to the place that the Lord will choose to make His name dwell there, there you shall bring all I've commanded. Verse thirteen: Take care you don't offer your burnt offerings at any place, but at the place the Lord will choose. Verse seventeen: You may eat within your towns the tithe of your grain. Verse eighteen: But you shall, you shall not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain. But verse eighteen: You shall eat them before the Lord in the place the Lord your God will choose. Verse twenty-six. All the holy things, you shall go to the place with them with the Lord your God will choose. The point's very clear in that repetition, isn't it? Acceptable worship of the true and living God is at the Lord's place, the place of God's choice on God's terms, doing what he has commanded at his invitation. He is the one who, by his command, invites Israel to come to seek that place he has chosen to make his presence the goal of their pilgrimage. And when you think about it, if we are to worship the true and living God, that's the way it must be. It must always be on his terms, not ours. It must be what pleases him, not us. The one worshipped will determine the worship he finds acceptable because he is the living God, holy, almighty, of infinitely greater power and wisdom and righteousness than his creatures. Worship is not a negotiation. So let's say you wanted to meet Gina Reinhardt. You know, you wanted to talk her into slinging you a few mil. Now, Now, let's face it, she doesn't need you, but you need her. On whose terms would you meet? Would you ring her up and say, Gina, could you hop down to the Kingsbury Maccas for a chat? No way. If you could get through to her, she'd decide the time and place of meeting, wouldn't she? And for the sake of those few millions, you would drop everything, endure a bit of inconvenience to keep the commitment. She'd call the shots. Or let's say, And let's face it, as I look about you, this is highly unlikely, okay? But let's say you're invited to one of the Queen's garden parties and the invitation said, dress formal. Would you show up at the gates of Buckingham Palace in stubbies and thongs and insist that you had the right to get in? On whose terms would you gain entry? Well, it won't be yours, it'll be hers. Now, God is infinitely greater than Gina and the Queen and he does not need us or our worship. When we want to come to him, we come on his terms. What he says, he finds acceptable. Where, he says, he can be found. You know, you can worship idols, false gods, dead gods, whatever way pleases you because they've got no say in it. But you can't worship the living God in whatever way pleases you. He calls the shots. He decides where and how we can come into his presence, where and how we can worship him, seek his help. Now, for Israel, that was the place he chose from all their tribes and the sacrifices he commanded. But, as we know, they were unfaithful in their worship. They corrupted the place he chose a long story marked by the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and then by Jesus declaring that they had made the rebuilt temple a den of robbers fit only again for judgment. The living holy God says to us today that the place we can be in his presence now, the place of our acceptable worship is Jesus. In John 2, Jesus identifies himself as the temple of God, the one in whom we are in the presence of God, the one in whom we can draw near to God and be heard by God. Oh, and in John chapter 4, Jesus says that the worship the living God finds acceptable is worship in spirit and truth. That is, through the spirit Jesus gives and the truth Jesus brings you cannot worship the living God acceptably without faith in his son, Jesus. Faith that his son, Jesus, has died for our sins and been raised to have authority over all. And that means you cannot worship the living God acceptably unless you are listening to Jesus and doing what he commands. And what he commands is, well, not pilgrimage to holy places or bloody sacrifices, but a life conformed to his will, a life of trusting him and of loving and doing good. Now, that's a very big idea. Faith in Jesus, not faith in any other saviour, not faith in any other teacher or prophet, not faith in your own good works. Faith in Jesus is the worship the living God commands. And acceptable worship is doing what Jesus says, not what pleases you, especially in worship. And Jesus doesn't command rituals or generating a certain kind of feeling or meeting in holy places. Jesus commands us to love one another, to speak the truth to one another to build up and encourage one another in all we do, to build up by helping each other hear the word of God, the gospel word, and trust Jesus. So are you worshipping the living God his way or your way? Do you come to God relying wholly on Jesus? Or have you slipped into pagan practices that make your convenience, your preferences central? Have you, say, made the test of true worship how you feel, dictating to God what he should find acceptable? Do you feel free, say, to substitute what you think should be worship, whether it's rituals and robes or dancing and lots of singing, for what he has said is worship, the offering of your whole life to God, to follow Jesus in response to his grace? Now we live in a consumer culture where the focus is on us and on what pleases us and so we need to hear again and again from God that we worship the living God only on his terms conforming to his word. Secondly, because the true and living God is gracious, good and generous, true worshippers are marked with joy and thankfulness. Did you notice that repeated emphasis on rejoicing in the presence of all before the Lord your God? As there in verse 7, you shall rejoice, verse 12, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. Verse 18, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. Now, the Israelites could rejoice because going up to the place of the Lord's choosing meant they had come into their inheritance, the land the Lord had promised their forefathers. They were enjoying God's promised provision, not just in having land, but in the fruitfulness of the land and experiencing his faithfulness to his promises. Their presence before the Lord meant that they knew and could draw near to their God, their saving God and that they were enjoying the blessings of the covenant God had graciously and freely entered into with them. It meant that they knew his protection and provision in the relationship that he, the only God, had made possible. And that's a good reason to rejoice, isn't it? And in his generosity, the Lord, you see there, insists that all are to be included their servants and slaves as well, and the landless Levites. They were all to be included in the enjoyment of the blessing of relationship with God, in rejoicing in God's faithfulness and graciousness. And God's generosity to them was not just experienced in the place he had chosen for his dwelling, in their worship before him. No, God's generosity is to be experienced in his provision of food, of meat, to meet not just their need, but their desire for meat. We perhaps find God's instructions on how and where he is to be worshipped, mixing it up with instruction about eating meat in their towns, a little confusing. But it is necessary because of the changes that will happen when the people enter the land and spread out in many villages and towns throughout Palestine. You see, in the wilderness wanderings, God had commanded that all meat, whether for sacrifice or just for food, was to be slaughtered at the entrance of the tabernacle, that tent. But when they were spread out across the land and they were entering, that would no longer be possible, or at least would represent a severe restriction. But God says, well, that they can eat. And kill as much meat as they like in any of their towns and villages wherever they live, and that this meat will be available to all, clean to all. They just had to distinguish verse twenty, that provision from the killing of animals, and consumption of food that the Lord had been that the Lord had commanded as part of His worship. You see, in this provision. The good God shows that he has thought of and provided for their enjoyment of the land and the peace that he was giving them in the land. He's good and generous in this provision. And our God's still the same, the generous provider of all we need, whose provision of a place and means of worship should be a cause for us of joy and thankfulness. You know, so often our world suggests somehow that our God is not good and not generous, that he is mean and restrictive. And even their repeated assertion of that lie can make us doubt God's goodness, be hesitant to boldly express it, hesitant to be publicly thankful for his kindness. Yet all our experience as believers tells us how good and generous God is. Believers in Jesus wake up every day being able to come into, be in the presence of the Holy Living God by His Spirit because of His Son. His Son given in love for us when we were undeserving. Believers in Jesus wake up every day saying, God is my Heavenly Father, I am His child, I'm forgiven. And in a world full of death, I have a hope of eternal life because God has promised this to all who trust him in trusting his son Jesus, who worship him as he commands by putting their faith wholly in Jesus. It's no wonder, is it, that the scriptures tell us to rejoice always. Don't we have lots of reasons to rejoice always? And our Father gives us good promises to never leave or forsake us, to provide for all we need where we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He says since St Paul, he gives us all things richly to enjoy. Our God is good and generous. Now, believers, we all have our ups and downs, but it is a sin to live as if your God is a mean miser and not to honour him as good, gracious and generous, to honour him by turning to him in our need and in turn praising him for his provision. Believer, if your life is not marked by thankfulness, if you are so overwhelmed by your circumstances that there is no joy, well, it is time to come into his presence to come as you can come because of Jesus and remember his generosity to you in his son and rejoice whatever your circumstances in being his, in being in relationship with the living God as your father through trusting him, trusting that his son Jesus died for your sins, to come into his presence and rejoice. But you may have noticed Something strange in God's instruction about the provision of food, of meat for his people. His repeated insistence on what you should do with the blood of the slaughtered animal. Only you shall not eat the blood, you shall pour it out on the earth like water. They must never eat it because the blood is the life or the life is in the blood. Now, most of us are pretty detached from the lives of the animals we eat, even if we run rabbits. But for us to eat meat, animals have to die. Their blood must be shed. And from the time of God's first provision of meat for humankind in Genesis 9, God has insisted that while we are given meat, their life is not ours to have you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. Now that instruction was repeated and reinforced in Leviticus where God says that the life of the animal, the blood, is given to make atonement for the sins of the people, the animal's life for the life of the sinner. Even as we enjoy God's generous provision in the meat that we eat, we are not to forget that life is God's, all life, all living things, especially the animals who share life, breath, with humanity. See, this is a reminder that the Lord, the living God, the only God, is the giver and the sustainer of all life. It is his, not ours, and we can only be sustained by the death of other life by his gift. Now, there's a lot to think about here. But we have to remember that the prohibition on eating blood is one of those things that the early church stipulated should be observed by Gentile, non-Jewish believers as well as Jewish ones there in Acts 15. (coughs) In the way we live, in the way we receive God's provision of food, in the way we treat animals, we are to honour the Lord as the creator, the giver of life. And that should prompt our reflection. Do we routinely give thanks for God's provision, remembering the food we eat is his gift? More have we succumbed to the arrogance that think that all life is ours, all to be subjugated to our human needs. God's word and the practice of God's commands are given to shape our moral intuition, our sense of what is right. Now, we are, as a whole, removed from animal husbandry and the provision of meat. In my own family, my grandmother was the last to move off the dairy farm her family ran. We're now, in a sense, for our food, dependent for our food on bigger structures. But confessing life is the possession and gift of our good and generous Creator means that we should always insist that animals are treated with dignity, that their life matters, and that it is a solemn thing to take it, to be sustained in life by the death of another life. And that intuition <clears throat> should inform our purchasing, even if we have to put in a little work to find out how we get our food. And it should make us insistent as a society on animal welfare standards and not see people who are vocal about those things as nuisances. Now, test all things... Okay, But the arrogance that can treat animal life as a thing whose whole purpose is to sustain us in life, forgetting the Creator, is only a step away from despising human life, stripping it of the sanctity bestowed on it by the gift of the same Creator. Well, here's Deuteronomy 12. This is our God, the God of Israel, the living God, no dumb idol, who tells us where and how we can worship him and who can only be worshipped where we conform to his word, the God who tells us that we now come into his presence by trusting his son Jesus, the gracious, good, generous God, no mean tyrant, the Lord of creation, the giver and source of all life in whose hand is our life. Now perhaps you're sitting there and you realise you don't know this God. You've got a sense of God, but you've been stumbling around, thinking about God, unsure about the truth of him. Well, you don't need to stay in uncertainty. You see, the living God speaks. He makes himself and his will known so that you can know him. Stop being in uncertainty. Get to know him. Get to know him in his best and final word, his son, Jesus. And we would love to help you to do that. Or perhaps you've been thinking that you can relate to the living God on your own terms, that God will be pleased with what pleases you. Well, let me tell you, your idea of God won't save you. Your giving to God the worship that pleases you won't save you. So acknowledge God to be God, your God, your Lord. But he has the authority to insist that you relate to him on his terms. Be open to letting God change your mind about what it is to know him. That might be challenging, but I can tell you as you get to know him in Jesus, he is better than you think. But maybe you're a believer in Jesus. Well, keep letting the living God tell you how to worship him. Don't slip back into relying on your own works. Know the freedom and joy of meeting God at the place he appoints, his son Jesus. And don't allow yourself to make your own ideas and feelings the test of whether you are worshipping God. That way is the way of paganism and death. Keep on humbly heeding his word. In your life as a witness to the world, Resist the arrogance that says the whole creation is here just for us to live or to die as it suits us and our needs. That is just arrogance. Consciously remember that life is God's and your life is sustained by his gift, so you treat all life with respect. And knowing him, worshipping him as he commands through repentance and faith in his Son, rejoice because he has given you life he's given you access into his presence he's assured you of his love and that he will keep you and provide for you forever rejoice and include others in your joy share with them your worship that life of faithful obedience to the faithful saviour Jesus let's pray our gracious God We do thank you for this word and we thank you that it is given for us. Help us to listen to it. Help us to be people who worship you by trusting your son, who know you by listening to your son and who now live lives of worship pleasing you by following your son, Jesus. Open our hearts to your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.